morning. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you. Um, my name's Matt. If you don't know me, I am a, a longtime friend of Jeff and Jody's and have recently moved up to the area working in Asheville, helping a former student uh, start a project there, a business. And uh, I'm here. My wife is with me today, but she's still down in central Florida. So I'm actually... Uh, it sounds really weird when I say this, but I'm sharing a basement with an 11-year-old, uh, Cannon. <laughs> I'm living down there uh, with Jeff and Jody for a little while. I'm commuting to Asheville from here four days a week. But uh, I'm excited to be with you guys, and I love this community. It's a beautiful community. You guys have uh, shown yourself to be incredibly hospitable and uh, to show yourselves to have uh, not only an authenticity and a generosity of spirit, but also an excellence at what you do. And so I appreciate everything that I see going on here from uh, Upstreet and from the kids uh, to Liz, AJ, and TJ. Those of you who play, you do it so beautifully. I love starting out a sermon or a service with David Bowie. That just does something to me. It's awesome. And uh, Debbie, thank you for sharing that story. That was beautiful and has a lot to say to all of us. Life's not easy. Um, I read something today, this morning, that uh, prayer to have is not, Lord, make this year easy. Not make it great. Not make it lovely. But make it count. And it's in sometimes the most difficult uh, situations where the results aren't really in our hands. But how we handle those and what we do. Uh, is. And so that segues a little bit into what I want to speak about today. You know, uh, New Year's is fraught with uh, good intentions and the wiping away of old calendars and new calendars uh, and new intentions and uh, New Year's resolutions. And uh, transformation is something that we're all looking for in our lives. Uh, Very few of us would say, I've arrived in every category. I've got it all together. And just sit at my feet, bask in my glow. Uh, typically, we all know that there's something that we want changed, transformed in our life. Be it relationships or finances or physicality or intelligence or whatever that might be. We want to see transformation happen. And so today, what I want to do is I want to tap into that zeitgeist. I want to deal with what we're all kind of feeling in the air and culture and not spend a lot of time looking at that. But let's look at a biblical example of what transformation looks like. And in all of scripture, one of the most interesting stories that uh, you can find is found in the chapters uh, of Genesis 25 through 36. And it's the story of Jacob. You've heard uh, the God, our, our, our God referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jacob is a third of these patriarchs who really are foundational to Judaism and to what we would become as followers of Jesus. And so I just want to say to you before we go into another prayer and then kind of launch into this, that this is a drive-by. I just need you to know that. We're, we're covering a lot of ground here in the scriptures. And so I'm not going to have us read it all. I will read a segment at the beginning of the story of Jacob and a passage of scripture towards the end of uh, scriptures dealing with him. And so we'll look at that. But it's going to be a lot of me just kind of giving you the highlights. If you know the story of Jacob, then you'll be like, oh, that's right. Jacob, 
And his family put fun in dysfunction. Now remember, these guys were messed up. They needed New Year's resolutions for sure. Um, But if you aren't familiar with it, let me encourage you over the next week, two weeks, to dive into this story. It's full of a lot of exciting and uh, interesting things that take place. And really is a case study for us. And how true transformation most often takes place. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a new year. We thank you for new beginnings and change. And we thank you for opportunities to be your hands and feet into this community and into this world. So, for the next little while, you've already been amongst us. You're with us when we woke up and got in the car and bickered on the way over and drove and got here. And you're with us through our musical worship and our giving and our announcements. You're, you're with us in this part as well. But uh, here's what we ask. We ask that you help this day count. Uh, It may not be the most polished or smooth, and it may be awesome. But whatever it is, may it bring a smile to your son's uh, face, the face of Jesus. And and may this be a moment where true uh, exchange and growth takes place. We love you. You're a heck of a God. Amen. So if I were entitling this sermon today or this message, I would call it New Things, Beautiful Things, Jacob as a Case Study of Transformation. And I want to start out here with a poem by Mary Sarton. Uh, it's called 21 Words, and this is really indicative of what I want to get at today. Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places, I've been dissolved and shaken Warn other people's faces. A hero of mine in the faith, Parker Palmer, wrote a book among many called Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation, where he cites this poem and he says this about it. What a long time it can take to become the person one has always been. How often in the process we mask ourselves in faces that are not our own. And how much dissolving and shaking, Sartan says, of our ego we must endure before we discover our deep identity, the true self. See, if there's anything that Christ came to do, Christ came to restore to us relationship with the Father. And in doing so, we're healed not only in relationship with God, but with ourselves. With others and, and with the whole of creation, actually. We're icons, images of God in this world meant to display God to this world. And therefore, our relationships in those four directions, God, self, others, and creation, is what salvation is really about, transformation. And Jacob is rife. He is chock full of insights as to what this means to be transformed. And, and, and just one other shout out. I'll get it out of the way. is uh, I am a huge Victor P. Hamilton junkie. And that means almost nothing to anyone in this room. But his handbook of the Pentateuch. Captured my imagination when I was 19 years old. And it is one of those books that I keep very near my bed. And I often return to it because he has a way of bringing these first five books of the Bible to life in such a poignant, powerful, and inspirational way. So I'll be borrowing heavily from him. So what does it mean for us to have transformation? Well, 
here are kind of the steps that we're going to look through in the life of Jacob and what I think is actually indicative of the larger struggle, wrestling process of transformation that we all encounter. The first is this. Culture and, and or situation circumstances give us a name. We're going to see that in the life of Jacob, but that's how it works with all of us. We're born into a family. We're born into a community. We're born sometimes into a faith or a political or philosophical ideology. And therefore, streams of influence shape us into who we are. And so it's important to know that those names are not often the names that God would call us by. Uh, maybe you had the most amazing family, the ideal school setting with every teacher just loving you and wanting to see you self-actualized in every single way. Maybe popular culture only got filtered through good things and nothing bad came into you. Maybe you didn't have any bullies. You just had BFFs and they all wanted you to do the right thing. And maybe you just understood all of that. But more likely, like me, you had a mixture of good and bad influences in your life. And oftentimes what we do is we don't know how to discern our true selves from our false selves. And we take the pain that this world thrusts upon us and that we sometimes as a result invite upon ourselves. And it leads us into what many people call a false self. The self that God didn't intend for us to be. So that's what happens. And then that's what happens uh, after that we spend our early years living out that name. It's easier to, to heap shame and guilt upon ourselves. It's easier to buy into the myth that we're not all that. Or it's easier to, to, to develop vices rather than virtue. Because vices are instantaneous. And they grab us. And they uh, feel good. They scratch an itch. Whereas virtue takes a lot of hard work to develop character and morality. And a life of faith and integrity. And then somewhere along the way, after we've been given a false name and after we've lived into that false name, we come into contact with God. And when we come into contact with God, I'm not talking about we started going to church. I'm talking about one of those moments where God shows up and illumines the world. It could be through a song. It could be through a sermon. But more often it's through uh, the look at a newborn or the death of a loved one or it's a beautiful holly tree out in front of your grandpa's who's dealing with cancer as it was for me when I was 18 years old. But God shows up. Not something that you cultivated or made happen, but God shows up in this kind of awakening that's not dependent upon our control. And we can either receive that or we can run from that. But in that situation, we come into contact with God, we realize there's more. There's more to this great big world than we've ever known. <laughs> There's more than just what we've been taught. There's more than the names that we've just seen. There's more than just the vices and the patterns that we've become accustomed to and seen modeled for us. And we realize there's more to this world. And in doing so, we also realize that there is more to us. Perhaps there is a truer name that I can live into. And then... Finally, we wrestle through the conflict between our true selves that is situated in God and the false selves that we have borne so long until we finally walk into our new names and our new blessings. Uh, albeit 
often with a limp. <laughs> so what does this look like in the particular instance of Jacob? Well, let's go through this. And I'm going to give it little names that you might want to jot down. You might see on the screen. This is just a, a memory to get you there. But uh, each of them will correspond. Jake, we'll see that, that there, as, as Jacob's story unfolds, it kind of goes in step with these four movements that we talked about. So culture and circumstance gives us a name. We see this in the in utero events of Jacob's birth. <laughs> Let me read this for you. It's out of Genesis 25. Now, it's the story of Jacob and Esau. This is the family tree of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethel, of Armin, of Paddan, Aram. And she was the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Now, Isaac prayed hard to God for his wife because she was barren. And God answered his prayer and Rebekah became pregnant. But the children tumbled and kicked inside her so much that she said... If this is the way it's going to be, why well, go on living? I, I imagine that there are some women in this church who know what that feels like. She went to God to find out what was going on, and God told her, Two nations are in your womb, two people's butting heads while still in your body. One people will overpower the other, and the older will serve the younger. And when her time to give birth came, sure enough, there were twins in her womb. The first came out reddish, as if snugly wrapped in a hairy blanket. And they named him Esau, which means hairy. His brother followed, his fist clutched tight to Esau's heel. And they named him Jacob, or heel, heel grabber. Another word for that is deceiver. And Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. And the boys grew up. Esau became an expert hunter and outdoorsman. Jacob was a quiet man, preferring his life indoors among the tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he loved his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac, from the very beginning, uh, has an, Jacob has, from the very beginning, an issue with his brother. <laughs> in, in womb, they're already wrestling and butting heads. He's already grabbing his heel, which is a... Uh, term in that language, in that culture for deceiver. So Jacob's been named deceiver as he comes out of the womb. And we're going to see how that plays out. This next part, we spend our early lives living out that name and Jacob lives up to his name. Genesis chapter 25 and Genesis 27 tells us about two incidents in the early life of Jacob where he's living into this name, he'll grab her a deceiver. And they involve his brother, Esau. And one is the stealing of Esau's birthright, and the other is of Esau's blessing. So this is how this works in this community. In these times, uh, what would happen is the firstborn got everything. Uh, excuse me, the firstborn son. Ladies, you don't get anything in this culture. We've come a long way, Hopefully. Thank God. But uh, Esau, just by the fact that he was born seconds or scant minutes earlier than Jacob, is destined to receive everything. It's his birthright. And the way this works is there's a birthright. And then, eventually, when the father or the patriarch is old enough that he needs to pass everything on, there's a blessing 
that takes that covenant that was made upon him being born first and actualizes it or puts it into actual play. And so what happens is we see, uh, again, Jacob is a mama's boy. Uh, I was a mama's boy. It's not a bad thing. I like to cook. And Esau is his dad's favorite. So Esau is out hunting and he's not getting anything. (laughs) And he comes back starved and famished. And Jacob's sitting in the tent with a pea porridge or a split pea soup. Lentil soup is what it was. And he comes in and he says, brother, I'm dying. Probably an exaggeration. But this is kind of indicative of Esau's tempestuous manner. Tempestuous, that's the word I'm looking for. Esau says, I'm dying. Jacob's like, this is some good soup, yo. Esau says, give it to me. <laughs> and this is Jacob, heel grabber, deceiver. Give me your birthright. <laughs> well, what does Esau do? What so many people do. He grasps for the instantaneous momentary solution to his problem. And someone is always in this world waiting to take you up in your moment of weakness for their benefit. That's what he does. Esau's, okay, you got it. Just give me the dang pea soup. What a costly bowl of soup. (laughs) So this goes on and this has happened, but it's not necessarily the the Bible account is unclear as to whether Jacob and Esau told their dad about it or their mother about it or whatever. But we get the hints that his mom knows, Jacob knows. And remember, Jacob is a mama's boy. She's not as big a fan of Esau. So later on, it says that Jacob's dad... Isaac is getting ready. He's blind. He's old. He knows he doesn't have too much time left on this earth. And he decides it's time to actualize this covenant and to bless Esau. So he brings Esau in and he says, boy, go get me some of that venison or that game that I love so much. Make me some of your good deer chili and bring it. And I'm going to pray that blessing over you and it's all going to be yours. So he heads out. Esau's like, yeah. Jacob's mom comes to Jacob and says, this is the plan, son. So we're going to take some regular livestock and we're going to spice it up so he'll think it's the game. And what we're going to do is when we slaughter that, that lamb, that goat, we're going to take him because Esau's hairy. We're going we're gonna to put it on you. So that because Isaac is blind, when he feels for you, he'll think you're Esau. And then he'll bless you with his prayer and it'll all be yours. After all, you were smart enough. You got him to sell your birthright for that soup. So we're just going to actualize that. And so that's what happens. It's a really jacked up story. But this is who Jacob has become. Jacob. And not just by himself, with the help of his very own mother, who loves him dearly, is helping him live out this false name, heel grabber and deceiver. And so that's what happens. And Isaac blesses Jacob, gives him the prayer. Esau gets back, finds out that it's already gone. And in that culture, it's too late. Dad sees this as Esau. He's like, I'm sorry, I've already done it. Done deal. And so Isaac blesses uh, Jacob, 
Jacob is found out by his brother Esau. Remember, who is the hunter and Jacob's the cook. And so Jacob does what any boy should do. He flees. Mom says, uh, and this is, again, we have to understand this is a different culture. I kind of get it. I'm from Alabama. Um, But mom says, go find your uncle and marry one of your cousins. Uh, So... (laughs) That's what he does. He heads off and he goes and uh, he finds his way out. But on the way, right, we find another happening. So Jacob is fleeing Esau and home. He's going to a new situation and circumstance because he's brought this upon himself with this deception. And he lays down one night at a place called Bethel. And God appears to him in a dream. So we come into contact with God and realize there is more and more to this great big world and more to us. This is where Bethel, where God and Jacob dream together. Now you're probably familiar with this, but Jacob lays down. There's a stone for a pillow. He dreams, and in this dream there's a ladder with its bottom rooted on earth and its top rooted in the heavens. And there are angels coming and going up and down this ladder. It's a beautiful image of transformation in God's presence in our lives. And in fact, not only Christianity, but other religions will draw from Jacob's ladder as a symbol for spiritual awakening and for God's presence. Jacob has this dream and God says to him, hey, this is what I've done for your grandfather, Abraham. This is what I've done for your son, Isaac. And I know you're living out this way, but I want this relationship with you. And Jacob wakes He calls the place Bethel. He anoints that rock that was a pillow with oil. And he says, surely this is God's house. But this is what Jacob does. Even after having God appear to God in a dream. And for the ancient Israelites and for these patriarchs, by the way, when something happened in a dream, it was if it happened. So God showed up to Jacob and spoke to Jacob. And here's what Jacob said. I see your power. I see who you are. I see what you've done for my family. I'll make a deal with you. The deal is, is if you'll give me food, if you'll protect my life, if you'll give me the desires of my heart, you'll be my God. See, this is what happens to us. We think when God first shows up in our lives that that's it. But oftentimes we're still not ready to abandon our false names altogether. So we enter into God because we see a God of power and love and mercy maybe and joy. And we say, this is going to be a contractual thing. You give me what I want. And then I, right, will call you God. The transformation starts here. But it's not fully realized. This is not Jesus saying to them, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And then all this stuff will be added to you. See, we still have it backwards. God becomes a cosmic vending machine. Or a heavenly Santa. Where if we do the things we need to do and we end up on the nice list instead of the naughty list. Then we get all the toys that we want. The problem is, is that's not God. As we're going to see. So Jacob leaves that place. Having realized God. And knowing that there's more to the world. And more to himself than he's known. But he's still not transformed fully. And so we have this nice interlude in Genesis 29. Where 
uh, Jacob is working hard for love. <laughs> it's Jacob meets his matches because the story is, is he shows up and he sees his cousin and his cousin, um, uh, Rachel is beautiful. She's gorgeous. And he goes to her dad, his uncle Laban, and he says, hey, I need to marry your daughter. And what does Laban say? See, Laban is Jacob. Laban says, give me seven years of hard labor and then you can marry her. Now that's love. So the Bible says that Jacob put his hand to work. He did seven years and it was like it flew by because he was in love. So he goes to get married. You've got to remember there's lots of veils and clothing and things and that kind of wedding ceremony. And so Jacob gets married to who he thinks is Rachel. And it says that he went to the tent and he laid with her that night. And upon the morning, he realized it wasn't Rachel. It was her older sister, Leah. Now, what a crappy dad. <laughs> Except that he probably wasn't. This is one of the reasons I love Victor P. Hamilton, because he susses out the meaning and the contextualization behind the Bible's description of Leah. It says Leah had weak eyes, right? So she was the, one, the, the most often translation, weak eyes. Well, what he says is she wasn't cross-eyed. What that probably meant is that Leah suffered from albinoism. She probably had kind of reddish eyes, and she was fully... Uh, albino, which is why the older sister, older daughter would not have been able to find a suitor and why dad who loved his daughter would need to go to deceiving a young suitor. Because skin conditions were uh, at that point in time associated with God's curse. And so Jacob (laughs) gets up, he's like, well, <laughs> he goes to Laban and he says, what gives, man? <laughs> I wanted that one and you gave me this one. What the heck? And Laban says, well, you can have her too. I just need seven more years. <laughs> but I won't make you wait seven years. You can go ahead, marry her as well, have your honeymoon, and then you owe me seven years. And so that's what happens. And there's a lot of things that go on with that and how the sisters were vying for his attention and giving him children and how... Leah seemed to be very fertile and Rachel wasn't. So anyway, go and look at that. But here's this part where Jacob realizes that his uncle is who he is. He finds a guy who is another deceiver. And so this goes back and forth. And then finally, in dealing with the livestock, Jacob deceives his father-in-law. His uncle and father-in-law. Yep. Alabama. I got it. Uh, and sorry if there's any Alabama people in here. Um, but uh, he, 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 he gets an upper hand on, on Laban and then he has to flee again. And he has to flee back home. And so we're, we're about to land this plane. So he heads out and he's heading back home. And at this point in time, he's accumulated a lot of positions because Jacob was slick. He's got a lot of livestock. He's got some wives. He's got their maidservants and concubines. He's got a lot of things going, a lot of kids. So he's not the same guy who had left home with nothing except for a promise. He's coming home to gain his promise and to bring what he's done on his own. And he's afraid. 
because he hears that his brother Esau is waiting to meet him. Now this is 20 years from Bethel. This is 20 years from him first encountering God in that dream. And saying, if you give me all this stuff, I'll be your God. And he's accumulated a lot of stuff. But it hasn't really solved the issue with who he is. Or what he fears. Or what's going on. At this point in time, Jacob has got a lot of stuff, but he's a pretty broken man. And so it's at this point, when we encounter lasting transformation... I call this Jacob Jabbok and the struggle for true self because Genesis 32 says that he came to a place called Jabbok. I'll read it here for you. This is where Jacob wrestles with God. It says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And then without anything else, it just right here in the text. And a man wrestled with him. What the crap? You think you could give us a little more details on what happened here? All of the biblical scholars, Jewish and Christian alike, interpret this passage as a theophany, which is a showing up of the pre-incarnate Jesus in earth, in form, before uh, we get to the events of the Tiffy. Nativity. So God shows up. That's what this word, a man, is interpreted as. Wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I've seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose upon him as he passed Penel, limping because of his hip. And therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket, Jacob's hip, on the sinew of his thigh. You see, there are at least three distinguishing characteristics of Jacob that surface here that separate him from the pre-Penel Jacob, from the Jacob before this place. The first is that for transformation to happen in Jacob's life and in our lives, there needs to be a consciousness of weakness. Scripture said, and Jacob's thigh was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. You see, he's the victor of his wrestlings with Esau, Isaac, and Laban, but he's now the victim. Not wrestling, but clinging. And whether Jacob's affliction is temporary or permanent, he leaves this encounter with a physical reminder of who is to be in charge of Jacob's life. Jacob has a consciousness of weakness. He also has a consuming hunger for God. In verse 26, I will not let you go. I will cling to you until you bless me. 
See, the blessing of Isaac is meaningless unless it's accompanied by the blessing of God. And where he obtained the blessing of Isaac through duplicity and through deception, he can obtain God's blessing only by being honest and by being prayerful. Not only does he have this consuming hunger for God, but he also has a confession of unworthiness, which is so important for true transformation to take place. The man, while wrestling, says, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. You see, his problem is his nature. What is your name? My name is Jacob. It means as much as what he is, as who he is. He understands, maybe for the first time in his life fully, that he is a deceiver and he has lived into his false name. And so this is what happens. We have a consciousness of weakness. We have a consuming hunger for God. We have a confession of unworthiness. And this is the result. This is the transformation. What does Jacob get out of this? Once he finally decides that it's not about what God will give him, but it's about I need to be transformed. I'm a deceiver and I don't want to be a deceiver anymore. What God gives him is a new name and character. He says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. He says, you have a new power. You prevailed. A new blessing. In verse 28, it says, and there he blessed him. A new testimony. I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved, is what Jacob can now say. A new day and a new start. says that the sun rose upon him and a new reminder of his own weakness, the limping upon his thigh, ever to remind him that he can't deceive his way into being who God wants him to be. It's not a contractual obligation. It's not something that he can control or manipulate. Manipulate, it's only when he surrenders to and receives God's blessing and grace that he receives the name, what? Israel. A whole people of destiny. God showcased to the world of what a relationship to a people and a God can be is demonstrated only when this man gave up. Now, What does that mean for us today? Well, this is largely just to start you off on the new year. (laughs) It's just to inspire you. There are new names and new blessings. New beginnings to be had. One of my favorite authors, Chaim Potok, wrote in one of his books, All Beginnings Are Hard. See, I think in life what we think is we're in the front yard playing football with our friends And somebody kicks the football and it hits the power line. And everybody starts screaming, do over, do over. And you go back like nothing happened before. That's not how it works in life. There are no do overs, do overs. But a life engaged with the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as fully realized and modeled and offered to us through the person of Jesus Christ, while there are no do-overs, there's always an in the beginning. 
And that's what we need to focus on today and for the rest of our lives. It's not an etch-a-sketch. We can't shake it and it goes back. But we can take it and make something beautiful out of it. So as Liz comes up and AJ, they're going to play a song for us. We're going to go into just an abbreviated time of, of worship on this. Let me also say this. If there was an epilogue to this story. It's that when God transforms you. Transformation requires restoration of things we've done wrong. In Genesis, I think it's 33, if you want to go through and read that, Jacob finally finds himself face-to-face with Esau. And he kneels. Even though he's the guy in charge, he kneels seven times to Esau and offers him gifts. And guess what? Esau doesn't do him harm. Esau's ready to receive his brother. We don't know how the heck Esau got to where he got with God and his life got transformed. But he was happy to see his brother. And again... We can't control our relationships. We can't control and erase all the things that have happened, whether they're right or wrong, of our work or of others. We can simply be the people that God has called us to be and be God's hand and feet to this world. So stand to your feet, if you will, and let's sing this song.